0: Gnostics, long-haired weirdos,
1: short-haired weirdos, The the government, love. The government the government, love. The government the government, love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today's show is going to be a little bit different than our normal weekend show. And that's because, as I mentioned in last week's episode, that We're going to give our hosts the week off on this. uh, We normally record on Saturday mornings, August 15th is today, and uh, we will be returning to our regular show next week. But there were some things that happened this week, and uh, before we get to the main part of today's show, which will be first my interview with uh, political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and then Jay will join me for some commentary that we recorded, but there were some things that happened this week and, and I felt like I should at least maybe take a few minutes to, to talk about them, comment on them before we get to that. So this will actually be an extra long uh, episode of the politics guys. I think all things considered though, slightly different in format. And again, we'll be going back to our regular weekend show next week with uh, with Trey and Ken. Hosting the show. Maybe it was just the fact that I couldn't bear the thought of going two whole weeks without actually talking to you guys about what's going on in politics. That sounds actually about right. So, anyway, there were three, I think, three main stories this last week that I wanted to at least briefly comment on. The first one was, of course, Joe Biden's choosing Kamala Harris as his vice presidential. Now, the political science literature is pretty consistent in telling us that vice presidential choices just don't make much of a difference. There used to be the the sort of thinking that, well, you could pick somebody for sort of geographical balance and maybe pull in a region and that sort of thing. Clearly, that wasn't Joe Biden's consideration, right? Because California is about as solidly democratic uh, as a state as as you're likely to get. But so, you know, I think that there are a number of ways to look at this pick. Certainly in terms of picking a black woman at this point in time, that is a strong symbolic choice, right? That's not to say that Joe Biden, and the Democrats don't largely have at least the black segment of the electorate largely sewn up. It tends to be uh, black, uh, blacks is uh, in voting, voting tend to go, you know, 90 something percent for Democrats, very strongly and solidly. But, Symbolic politics aside, and that's not an unimportant thing, you know. Uh, increasing enthusiasm from your base, uh, you know, I think that uh, that Senator Harris is just generally a pretty solid and safe selection, and I think that's a that's a more or less a consensus view. Now, I know there are some progressives, particularly who are upset at the choice, given Harris's background as a prosecutor. But if you take a look at her voting record, now, she hasn't been in the Senate that long. She came into the Senate in January 2017. But since that point, according to the rankings on uh, VoteView.com, which has comprehensive ideological rankings going back quite a ways, it's pretty interesting to check out, Harris is actually the second most liberal senator since coming into the Senate, Uh, and who's first? You might think it's Bernie. You'd be wrong. It's actually Elizabeth Warren, then Cory Booker, and then Bernie Sanders in this period from 2017. Now, that's pretty strongly liberal, right? And if you make a comparison, well, uh, Barack Obama, when in the 2005 to 2007 period he was in the Senate, was actually only the 19th most liberal uh, senator. So, I think Republicans are right, and many of whom are saying that this is the most progressive, or they'd call it the most far-left, I guess, you know, tomato-tomato, um, Democratic ticket, at least in terms of policy positions ever. I think that's a, that's a reasonable point. And, of course, I see this as largely a good thing. Uh, of course, part of that, though, I think is to rally the base. I don't think that in practice, this ticket, or if this ticket becomes an administration, which I think odds are it will. That it's going to be quite that liberal as the uh, as the policy positions suggest. I think that Joe Biden is by nature more of a moderate, or really maybe more of just kind of a political animal, if you will, than an ideologue. I've never felt, and Joe Biden's been in politics for longer than I've been around. Certainly, at least as politically aware, he's not very hugely ideological. And I really think that the same is at least somewhat true of Paris, though. Again, we're working with a lot smaller uh, set of observations here, but I attribute her liberal voting record in her short time in the Senate, at, at, according to a number of things. Number one, I think it's in part a function of her state. California is a very liberal state, obviously. So that's one thing. Secondly, I think it's also part of uh, her strategy, which what I believe to have been her strategy for the last few years, to try to get the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, approaching it from left of centrist, like people like Hillary Clinton, for instance. And also, I think, partly a way of sort of uh, minimizing or answering concerns from ideological progressives about her prosecutorial background. And then I also think, of course, that there are some general you know, policy views that she sincerely holds. But I, but I think it's a lot of those things. I certainly don't see her as an ideologue in the same way that I would see, say, a Bernie Sanders or kind of a, uh, a pragmatic uh, policy wonk slash ideologue like an Elizabeth Warren sort of thing. And so what I think is going to happen is if if uh, Harris and Biden are actually the administration, I guess it should be the other way around, right, Biden and Harris. I think facing a more, uh, well, a less ideological winning coalition in the Senate, especially trying to need to get legislation through, even if the Senate does away with the filibuster, which I'm guessing they're going to do, they're going to have to tack to the Senate. And I think both of them are going to be okay doing that sort of thing. A couple other points I wanted to make is there was this ridiculous, I felt it was ridiculous thing in the media about. Harris being too ambitious and not apologizing to Biden for going after him. And, and you know, the first thought I had with that is, well, I don't really see that as having come up if Harris had been male. Maybe that's just me. Some people say, oh, geez, you're just overcompensating being, you know, for being a white male and being overly sensitive. I know. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think terms like aggressive, uh, when you hear that in a negative way oftentimes is applied to women more than men, certainly. And, and so I think there is sort of a double standard on that. And uh, I think, I hope, certainly, as we have more women in the high political office, and certainly having a female vice president would be great. Uh, maybe we'll see less of that, I would like to hope. Then, of course, there's this 2024 issue, which talk about he's thinking way far ahead. I mean, some people have pointed out maybe she's being set up as the future of the Democratic Party. And I don't really know that anyone can actually set the person up. But vice presidents don't have a bad track record, certainly better than uh, almost anyone else at becoming presidents, if you take a look at at, at history. And I think, you know, Joe Biden would be 78 if he's inaugurated in January of 2021, which means he'd be, uh, right, 82. Okay, do that math, Mike, <laughs> for a second term. And that's, that would be kind of old to run, though it, I don't know if it would. Well, we'll see what happens anyway. Again, putting the cart before the horse. But overall, I got to say uh, Kamala Harris, a totally reasonable, safe choice from somebody who I think is looking at the polls and looking at the situation and thinking, you know, I don't need to take a big swing here. I just want to make sure I don't do anything crazy and damaging and so forth. And, uh, you know, I think good job joe biden on that all right uh the second thing i wanted to mention it's a, a big story i think has to do with the postal service and the 2020 election is donald trump trying to kneecap the postal service to uh suppress votes to win the election eh, that certainly has been the narrative right especially in a lot of the left of center media um, my for some reason my go-to news choice, if I just want to quickly check some stuff, is is CNN. And I don't know why, because they're just they're 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 further left than I am, and I have a problem with their uh, how I don't know. I'm gonna say crazy is is too strong, but they're further left. But I don't know. It's it's weird. I like the layout of of their site, and that's an embarrassing reason to choose a site. But anyway, on CNN and other sites like that, it, there's there's been a lot about this sort of thing, and when I. Listen to or read Donald Trump's comments. I really feel like a lot of people are spinning them or twisting them. It seems to me that what Donald Trump was saying is that, hey, Democrats want this, you know, postal money for the postal service, and if they don't agree with me on this other stuff, they won't get it. So I think he was using it my take was that it was just leverage. Essentially. You want a, you want an agreement? You want this? I want that. Let's make a deal, essentially. Now, I think Donald Trump's uh, uh, prowess as the great deal maker has been wildly overestimated, as his record would suggest, at least in politics. But that, that seems to me that's mainly what's going on here. Donald Trump wants a policy win, wants to be able to say he did this stuff and, you know, and then got certain things. And the Democrats want more funding for the Postal Service. And, and honestly, if I were in the Democratic leadership, and this is maybe why I'm not in the Democratic congressional leadership, I'd say, tell you what, let's just do a, let's just do a simple deal. Let's do a series of smaller deals. And why don't we have one of them be uh, a uh, full funding for the Postal Service? And let's say, what, what would that be? I don't know. I'd say $15 billion wouldn't be overly uh, insane basically based on some figures I've seen in exchange for a six month payroll tax freeze to, to, uh, to employees. And, you know, that, that to me would be a deal that could, that would have a lot of certainly support from the white house. And that would mean it would have support from right Senator McConnell, who basically, as I talked about last week, seems to outsource legislation to the white house, but I could see that working and then put, put president Trump in a position to say, well, you know, how can I refuse that sort of thing if it's that simple, straightforward, no ups and no extras? And then uh, then we could work on some other some other things kind of on a, on a piecemeal basis that that's how I would approach it if policy were the thing that mattered most to me. And it does. And so that's how I kind of approach it. Um, But that all said, I am glad that Democrats are sort of pushing back a little bit on this Postal Service issue. Again, I don't really think there's anything suspicious going on. The reporting that I read seems to be a lot of cherry picking. You know, finding some postal employees union saying we don't know why these things are being moved. But I don't get a sense that there's some great plot. It's true that the postmaster general, who's typically a career postal service employee, isn't now. Uh, DeJoy is a uh, came in from the outside. He's a big Republican and Trump donor, and that you know, hey, that should set up a red flag. But also, he has a he has a strong background in logistics and you can certainly make the argument that given the dire straits the Postal Service is in, that maybe bringing in someone from the outside that have some new perspectives isn't a bad idea. Now, honestly, I think that the best idea would be to let the Postal Service set their own rates and working, you know, and whether they want to deliver on Saturday or not, and just basically free the Postal Service, but that's not going to happen. That's a separate issue, and we, you know, I've talked about that before. I'll get off that so far. But anyway, so my, my, I guess where I come down on this is, There may be some issues, but I don't see them as being major issues, and I don't see this as being some part of a uh, Republican Postal Service, Postmaster General plot or strategy to disenfranchise voters. Third, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about is the agreement between the UAE and Israel. And, you know, again, Here's where my centrism, I guess, will show through because a lot of folks on the left are saying this is just a big nothing burger, right? So what? And I get that, uh, you know, the whole Middle East peace thing is is difficult and we've never, we haven't seen much progress in, well, like really in generations, certainly in my lifetime. But while this isn't peace in the Middle East or the big grand peace deal that President Trump, you know, it wanted, that heck every president has wanted. It's not nothing either. It's 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 nice. A nice, I don't know, is not the word, but it's at least a step in the right direction that Israel is willing to, at least temporarily, halt annexation of Palestinian territory. And Israel's been very clear: that this is a temporary thing in exchange for you know opening up these relations, recognition between the U.A. So, I mean, that's how we move forward. I think on these things as we take you know a, a little step forward, a little bit back, and. Will this hold? I am I am so pessimistic and cynical about Middle East peace, but I recognize this is not nothing. It's not the biggest thing in the world. Certainly, we would all like I think something better, uh, you know. But it's it's not nothing. And so, hey, good for good for President Trump and the administration to the extent that they were able to broker at least some sort of a minor deal and maybe it turns out to be nothing but I certainly hope not. And again this this is me uh, maybe I'm trying to be a little more centrist uh, on this uh in these comments because Jay isn't here to push back but I want to try to you know also say it's just because President Trump or the Trump administration does it or says it that doesn't automatically mean it's evil. I think we need to look at these things, you know, on a on a case by case basis and here I think yeah, this is, you know, okay, not great but okay. All right, and with that, I will end my comments, and we will get on first with my interview with uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and then that will be followed by uh, that will be followed by Jay's and my commentary. Also, a couple quick little things. Sorry, that was another. Also, I want to just remind you that we will have a midweek show. My interview with Ohio Supreme Court Justice Michael Donnelly, where we we talk about. Uh, things that really apply to national politics in a lot of ways, like the Michael Flynn case and the Paul Manafort case and and sentencing issues and plea bargaining. Really interesting interview. That will be free for everyone on Wednesday. And finally, I should also say, I can't believe this. I forgot to thank our new Patreon supporter this last week, Taylor, and also our one time uh, PayPal supporters. You can do that, actually. You know, I've said if patreon is too much of a commitment we've got that paypal link up on politicsguys.com you can make a pledge of support just once and david and robert have done that in the last week thank you guys so much for doing that we really doing that we really appreciate that and of course as a supporter you get that second full-length episode every week normally it's not free for everyone you also get ad-free versions of all our shows when we are running ads which is every once in a while and various other things at different levels of support so check it all out politicsguys.com slash support. And also to just get in touch with us, to say hi, whatever, comments, questions, critiques, mail at politicsguys.com. And and finally, I promise this is the real final, finally, if you would like all of this content and you can't afford it, that's no problem. Just let me know. Send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure you get access to everything. We never want to let the lack of ability to pay to be a barrier to you getting all of our content. And I am happy, happy to do that. And also I should say, I want to really thank all the, all the supporters who stepped up and actually increased their support because they felt like, Hey, you know, if you're giving this to free for some folks and I want to kind of help to sort of subsidize that. And I hadn't even thought about that, but that's very cool of you. Thank you very much. And now I truly am finally going to shut up and we'll get to my interview with Jacob Hacker, and Paul Pearson. My guests today are Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, political scientists at Yale and UC Berkeley, respectively. They're the authors of a number of very insightful books, including The Great Risk Shift, Winner Take All Politics, American Amnesia, and most recently, Let Them Eat Tweets, which we'll be discussing today. And I've had the pleasure a number of times in the past of talking with Professor Hacker, and so I'm very pleased to have both of the authors of all of these great books on, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having us, Mike. Thanks, Mike.
1: So I, I like to start off in times with titles and subtitles because I think they're, they're chosen for a reason, not just marketing, and they can be sort of telling. And I mentioned the title of your book, Let Them Eat Tweets, but the subtitle uh, is... How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. And I know from reading many of your books in the past, economic inequality is a major concern for both of you and has been for a long time. So if you could just briefly get into why you feel that economic inequality is so dangerous.
2: Well, I'll kick things off by just saying that You know, it's not just a a concern of us as as scholars, but as as citizens, because the degree of inequality and the and the and the rise of inequality in the United States is really um, without precedent um, in other rich democracies today and with very little precedent in our own history. I mean, we are now back up to the levels of inequality that we saw in the in the Gilded Age, you know, a century or so ago. But in fact, the inequality that we see today is occurring in a in a fully de- de- you know democratic society in which we expect uh, a much greater role for government to address inequality than we did then, and uh, and, and and so our our work is really trying to understand well what is, what happens when you have an ostensibly democratic system and you, exp- and you see this kind of massive imbalance of of wealth and we argue political power and. Uh, and we think this, uh, this imbalance has really run through the Republican Party and, and helps explain why the Republican Party has become this strange a hybrid of right wing populism and conservative plutocracy, by which we mean fealty to the richest of Americans in corporate America uh, that we see today.
1: And and so that would obviously reference the first part of the title. Let them eat tweets—the sort of populist angle, which we're going to get to get to in a minute. And I should point out because I know there always are objections uh, or questions from uh, listeners on the right when we talk about inequality, and and we won't get into it in detail in this interview. But I, I would say that I think you both have made a very convincing case over the years that this isn't about envy. This is about most people struggling to get by in a very top sector moving ahead a great deal due to political decisions and not just the world being the way it is. And then there's that tie in, right, with with that economic power in our system translates very well into political power. So it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating thing, correct?
0: Well, yes. And, I mean, in this book, in, in some of our earlier week work, we've, we've tried to explain the growth of inequality in the U.S. and why that growth is so much more dramatic in the United States than it has been in other rich democracies. But here, our, our main focus is on the political consequences of rising inequality, and we suggest that for, for democracy, it's really kind of a, a triple threat when you get such a dramatic uh, shift in economic resources towards those at the top. Uh, so, and the three threats very quickly are, you know, one is You really increase the political power of, of those privileged groups because you can, you can translate uh, money into, into political power in various ways. And this, the second threat is that the more inequality you have, probably the bigger the gap is going to be in the interests of those at the top from those in the middle class or in the bottom, right? The, The wider that divergence is in their economic circumstances, uh, the wider the gap is in their interests, and that is combined with their growing political powers, is potentially a big problem for for most Americans. And then the final threat is because of that, because there's this growing gap uh, in interests and in power, uh, democracy itself can start to be seen as problematic by uh, by the wealthy and uh, and economic elites, uh, and so their support for democracy can decline in a context where they. They actually have good reason to fear that um, uh, that anything that allows majorities to exercise their political will is is potentially.
1: And I should point out that this isn't just theoretical. There's been an awful lot of research done in public policy outcomes that pretty convincingly demonstrates that when when we see this divergence of interests, that the the people at the top who have the economic power tend to get their way uh, a strikingly disproportionate amount of the time.
2: Yeah, and we also draw on some really powerful historical uh political science work by the political scientist Daniel Ziblatt who shows that a lot of this tension uh that's created by the growing distance between the rich and the rest um runs through conservative parties. Historically, it's conservative parties that have been most closely allied with those at the top and they're they're the Parties that are also most challenged uh, when the electorate expands include uh, working people. And and uh, Z Black calls this the conservative conservative dilemma, and we pick up on that in the book and talk about how the Republican Party has faced its own version of the conservative dilemma as inequality has grown in the United States. It's not that the franchise is expanding, but it's it is that Republicans have faced a choice about whether. And, uh, they want to ally with, and how closely they want to lie with the new winners in the winner-take-all economy. Uh, and once having made that choice, as we show, they they really did decide decide with plutocracy and and really emphasize a policy program that was tilted toward the very top, um, including big tax cuts for the rich, uh, as we saw in 2017. But once they made that decision, they had to figure out how to develop a set of electoral appeals uh, that would appeal to. Voters who weren't uh, winning out, indeed, who were losing ground in this economy. So, getting back to the title, uh, Trump's tweets are really, you know, a metaphor for the the Republican Party's substitution of these kinds of increasingly extreme appeals uh, for a real response to the felt needs of ordinary voters who are losing out rise rising inequality.
1: So it's a response to the, the dilemma of, well, you go where the money is, and that's sort of a necessity in our in our uh, electoral system at this point. But where the money is, and that, like, it's not even 1%, it's a fraction of 1%, and, but that's not obviously where the votes are. And so you have to find a way to sort of thread that needle or get both of those things, and, and hence, hence the dilemma. Um, Now, you, there's a lot of really fascinating historical material in the book that I wasn't aware of, certainly some international stuff, but, you know, it occurs to me and it probably will occur to listeners that, well, this sounds a lot like the situation that maybe we faced in the the Gilded Age and early 20th century. And a lot of people would say, hey, that turned out okay. We got, you know, a progressive movement and we got all this other sort of stuff. And so, you know, that's... uh, it seems like the Republican Party may be handled it well this time. So maybe maybe we're OK uh, right now if we look back at history. But I'm guessing you're not you're not <laughs> that would not be the position I know that you would take on this, correct?
0: Well, no, It would. I mean, I, I mean, we, we do think there's a there's an optimistic scenario in which um, in which the U.S. Moves out of um, the really challenging and we think you know potentially politically dangerous circumstances that they face at the moment. But there are you know there are less less uh, uh, optimistic scenarios as well. I'm sure we'll get to that uh, over the course of the conversation. Uh, it is important we think to look back um, at historical episodes. Uh, the Gilded Age is is obviously an important one um, to look at, and, and as you say. Uh, the U.S. in a kind of haltingly way eventually was able to work through that, uh, and so maybe we will be able to do that again. Um, but just because it happened once doesn't mean that that it will happen again. Obviously, circumstances are are different in many ways than they were a century ago. And you know, one thing we don't go into a huge amount of detail about this in the book because we're it's not meant to be sort of you know extended historical analysis. Um, But the party system then, in part because of the the particular way that race fed into American politics, um, the the party system looked actually quite different, and the nature of the Republican Party looked pretty different uh, back in the the late 19th and early 20th century than than the way uh, that it looks now. And so there were opportunities both within and outside that party uh, for social reformers who really did want to do something about inequality, to uh, to gain a foothold uh, and and produce a, a more progressive policy.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a great point. That there are a lot of differences, and so maybe we can look back and say, well, it gives us grounds for some optimism, but certainly not for complacency. I guess is kind of how I I look at it, but. Uh, Coming more toward the present, uh, your argument is that we really, really start to see on the right this alignment with the plutocrats, kind of in the 1990s, happening first in Congress and then in the present, and then in the presidency. I, I was hoping you could sort of briefly summarize what happened there and maybe even more importantly, why it happened.
2: Well, the what is pretty simple. Newt Gingrich uh, w- with his you know, insurgency of conservative Republicans in the Congress uh, took over the party. <laughs> the the how and why is are, are both more complicated. Um, so the first thing is really important to understand what Newt Gingrich was fighting against. Um, he liked to say that he was only fighting two groups: Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> um, and uh, the Republicans he was fighting were the old guard Republicans, like the one who was in the White House and. The late 1980s, uh, George H.W. Bush, who agreed to raise taxes in 1990, and, and this, uh, and particularly taxes on the rich, and, and Gingrich rebelled against that. Um, he was also, of course, fighting Democrats, and to fight Democrats, he developed a new, much more comprehensive confrontational style of politics that we know a lot about today. But one thing that I think we know less about um, is that Gingrich wasn't just a bomb thrower. He was also a huge rainmaker for the Republican Party. He built a machine that was then perfected by his successors, uh, you know, canny political operatives like Tom DeLay and uh, John Boehner, who would, of course, go on to be Speaker of the House. And And this machine was based on the idea that the, the new rich the people who are winning out in this increasingly unequal economy um, and corporate America which was also um, becoming more consolidated and um, and more wealthy that um, it that these these elements really had to sign up with the Republican Party or they would pay the consequence and um, so they built up the so-called K Street project they did this big thing called uh, project relief where they tried to um, uh, 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 reduce regulations on on businesses, and and in return for campaign donations, they basically ushered uh, uh, lobbyists into the inner sanctum of lawmaking. And and so, what happens with the party in the 1990s is that it becomes basically increasingly organized around uh, big money and uh, and right wing outrage stokers, particularly talk radio. Rush Limbaugh, you know, becomes of age in the 1990s and. People forget this, but after Republicans took Congress in 1994, they invited Rush Limbaugh to their ceremony saying that he was the reason for their new majority. They also uh, celebrated the National Rifle Association, which Bill Clinton himself said was the number one reason he lost Congress in 1994. So it was outrage and money that came together in this new Republican machine.
1: Yeah. And uh, one element of the book that is clearly pretty important to this story is uh, outside groups, which you focus on a lot. And in addition to, say, the NRA, you also mentioned uh, evangelical Christians. And, you know, in in your discussion of that, I couldn't help thinking about a much earlier book from the early 2000s. Uh, Thomas Frank wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas, in which he basically argued that, you know, conservatives are essentially working against the economic interests of some of their Core voters, a big part of their core voters, but then, at the time, I remember thinking, and I was still sort of transitioning from a conservative to to center left, I guess you could say, I remember thinking, you know well, economics isn't everything and, and you know, religion and these social matters, they they mean a lot to people. And maybe people on the left are underestimating the actual value of non-economic things like religion and you know tradition as well. And and I wanted to get your take on that.
0: Well maybe we could um could break this into two pieces. There's a lot there's a lot there and sure. and, 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 and well worth diving into, but maybe I, I could begin by saying a little bit about um The emergence of what we call these surrogates, uh, and their relationship to the party. And then, and we could talk a little bit about, you know, how we should think about whether people are actually pursuing their interests or not, because I think that is, I think you're raising a really, really important point there. Yeah. Um, but first to just talk about the, the developing relationship between the party and these groups. Um, so if, if the basic challenge with the, with the emergence of this conservative dilemma Uh, with rising inequality is that the party has to figure out how they reconcile um, the the interests of the economic elites that they're aligned with and who are increasingly popular or increasingly powerful how they reconcile that with winning elections the basic answer is that they reconcile it by getting people voters to focus on other dimensions of politics Um, frequently These are going to be cultural divisions of of one kind or another. Uh, So, but then the challenge is how do you get the voters to do that? And the reality is that that most um, parties, which are usually designed to be big tents, right? You got to be a pretty big tent to win elections in the U.S. Uh, They're they're not very good at um, stoking those kinds of intense feelings uh, around these these kinds of cultural issues, and so. It becomes common, and, and we show in the book that this has happened in other countries in the past as well. Sometimes with very dangerous effects, it becomes common to essentially develop relationships with um, groups that are focused on stoking outrage that are have are deeply embedded uh, in these communities and can uh, and are trusted and can uh, can communicate these kinds of messages effectively. And so, for the the modern American right, that is. Uh, the main uh, forms in which that takes are, are um, uh, evangelical groups and other forms of, of Christian conservatism, uh, the National Rifle Association, and um, more recently and, and somewhat distinctively, because of course it's not exactly it's not like a, a movement organization exactly. They're they're interested in making profits, but right wing media, which we think is an extraordinarily important part of this. Uh, this overall machinery, this overall coalition, really excels uh, at generating at generating out, outrage. And all these forces become much more important in the Republican Party over the last 20 years, much more tightly aligned with the party. I'll just mention one other important aspect of this, uh, which we think is really revealing, is that a, a, a nifty feature of the NRA and of evangelical organizations, from the point of view of party leaders, is that neither of those groups care very much about the economic agenda of uh, the plutocrats, right? So as long as they feel like their policy interests—and maybe this leads nicely to your your second question about whether we should see these voters as you know, not defending their own interests or not—but it—but a, a really uh, elegant feature of this alliance from the point of view of party leaders who are trying to reconcile these things is that the things that the plutocrats care about, uh, the NRA and evangelical leaders don't care very much about, and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. So that that um, provides a basis for a deal in which uh, these outrage groups can, can mobilize popular support, much of it around a sense of, of fear or of threat, Um, or of of identity that is, um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about this, uh, identity that is often highly racial, um, at least implicitly, uh, sometimes and increasingly explicitly racial. Uh, But but in any event, it's a set of appeals uh, that don't require the party to do much about the economics.
1: Right. So if if I... I'm gonna try to reformulate it a little bit. If I understand correctly, it's not so much that that you're arguing that these aren't these non-economic things aren't important—interest, tradition, religion, what have, whatever, gun rights, whatever issues—but but but that groups are using fear and misinformation to essentially. Uh, make people feel these things are more important or more imperiled to basically keep them keep their attention away from the economic interest. When if they hadn't been sort of manipulated or wild up in weighing those things, the economic interest would weigh more heavily. Is that is that a way to look at it? do You think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a very uh, good summary of of what we think these outrage stoking groups are doing. With with the caveat that. Paul already offered, that we think there is real policy content to many of these claims. Um, And a lot of them center on the Supreme Court, which is a very convenient uh, place for them to center because, of course, the Supreme Court is a political institution that doesn't have to be responsive to majority public opinion that can reflect the interests and demands of intense minority factions. So it just happens. and, And I think, you know, we are a political system that, that has a very large role for the courts and it's grown as as Congress has grown more gridlock. But um, but it also just happens that the kind of plutocratic populist agenda uh, is one where you can put Supreme Court justices uh, and lower court justice judges on the court who are both very conservative on social issues and very conservative with regard to business and economic issues. But let me get back to this question about um, voting against self-interest and, and, the, and the very lively book of Thomas Frank. Um, you know, Frank was writing, as you said, in the mid-2000s, and uh, things have gotten a lot, lot more intense uh, since then. And I, if I, I think it's a really elegant and, and well-written book. But if, I, if we're going to sort of summarize our differences with Frank, one t- one point would be that we actually think there's a lot at stake in some of these cultural and social debates um they're not just symbolic politics um and the supreme court is a place where a lot of them play out but another thing i think is that it, it, we think that the, the the party has really um has really constructed a kind of set of identities that allow them to suppress a lot of the the kind of issue consideration that might cause People to you know knowingly, if you will, vote against their self-interest. Instead, what's happening, I think, is as you said, is that they're, they're they're pressured to focus on other things, and also just to feel allegiance to the tribe, if you will, and um, and and that allows them. I mean, that leads to this crazy situation in which lots of Republican voters are screaming repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, but um, but they're actually when when they start. To think about and contemplate the loss of their own health coverage, they don't actually feel like that's a good thing for them, right? It's a kind of identity that um, that can lead to a kind of sloganeering and intense support for a party that is often pursuing policies that are are unpopular and which are even recognized to be unpopular uh, by their own voters. So, for example, in 2017, Republicans were trying, uh, or 2018 after the 2017 tax cuts. Republicans are trying to run on the tax cuts, and they just kept finding right that their own even their own voters didn 't like them they didn't think a tax cut that you know involved two trillion dollars in deficit spending eighty percent of wh- of the permanent benefits of which went to the top one percent was really a great a great policy. The last thing I would say, and this um, Paul was starting to talk about is that. Frankly, talks about this as kind of a culture war, but the racial element is just undeniable. Each of the groups we've talked about, the NRA, uh, Evangelical Conservative Christianity, and, uh, Christian right groups, and um, and uh, right-wing media have proved very, uh, were motivated by a racial backlash, and have proved very able in using racial themes uh, to pursue their, uh, their uh, outrage stoking. And so we could get back more into that, but I don't think you can understand how the Republican Party has built this odd Bedfellows coalition without looking at the way in which um, the racial threat in particular has been central to. Um, it's mobilizing effort.
1: Yeah, I did. I did want to talk about that because it seems to me, number one, in having read your previous work, that that isn't something that really came up in in a big way in a lot of your previous analyses, which you which you mentioned in, in this book. But also, of course, we're at a moment now in the last, well, in the wake of the George Floyd killing, where this has become this has become a front and center sort of issue, and and maybe it puts Republicans in a more Difficult position when some of these identities—I mean, these—when when it gets tied into things that seem more and more to be indefensible or racially insensitive or so forth. And so, I, I definitely w- was hoping you would you would kind of comment on that.
0: Yeah, well, we we start the book with a with a mea culpa. I mean, I I think that um, what's been going on in American politics in the last few years has. Been, has been shocking to many observers not not just to us um, the i think I think many analysts, most analysts would not have expected that a uh, that a candidate who presented the way that uh, Donald Trump did would be able to win um, win a presidential election uh, and maintain ninety percent uh, approval uh, within the republican party and i I think that was uh, what got us started on this project was Recognizing that even though we've been studying uh, the Republican Party for almost 20 years, that we had really, really underestimated uh, the role of of racial divisions in um, in the evolution of the Republican Party, uh, and so this book, in many ways, is an attempt to to wrestle with that um, with that. Uh, a failure to understand that uh, and to think about but but at the same time to argue that um, that uh, these racial issues have to be understood in combination with the dramatic uh, increase in economic inequality and how that has shaped the incentives um, and coalitions within the Republican party so so part of what we're trying to say in this here I think it's a hopefully a contribution both to the general public discourse around these issues but also Political science, I think there are a lot of people who have framed the rise of Trump as being uh, the way that they put it is well, is this about race or is it about, it's about racial resentment or is it about economic anxiety? Um, you know, it's one or the other. And I think increasingly when people frame it that way, they say, well, the evidence actually suggests, the public opinion evidence, for example, suggests that, that racial resentment is more important, um, that that's the, the driving factor here. And I think our view would be that it's a mistake to um, put these two alternatives in some kind of uh, intellectual cage match, right, in, in which only one can emerge as the winner. Um, and that, that rather it's a matter of understanding we, we think these, it, these matters are deeply intertwined uh, and that to try to understand why racial resentment resonates with a certain segment of the electorate. Uh, that one has to think about the about the profound economic changes which have both empowered this tiny sliver of the American population and given that sliver that powerful sliver and its and its allies strong incentives to um to activate the racial resentments that are there within the american populace and Trump emerges uh, as a figure who can do that right.
1: And, you know, I, I don't think uh, I'll give you guys a bit of a pass on this because I don't think it's just you guys who, who who missed this. I certainly missed it. And it seems to me that a lot of leading figures in the Republican Party itself. Missed this. I think back to the mid 2000s and what George W. Bush gets something like 44% of the Hispanic vote. And there are plenty of prominent Republicans talking about, you know, us uh, Hispanics in particular being uh, a natural GOP constituency and a move toward that and demographic change and all that. And all of a sudden, that just, that just seems to be wiped away. And so I think this blindsided a lot of folks.
2: Definitely agree, and I think within the Republican Party, there's um, there are a couple off ramps, if you will, that Republicans might have taken um, from the path that they were set upon by Newt Gingrich uh, in the 1990s. Um, I think the first is uh, actually around the time of George W. Bush, but ironically, uh, it was W.'s opponent, John McCain, in the 2000. 2000- election who set out a, a much more uh sort of uh reform minded vision that was more pluralistic, multiracial for the party than did uh than did W. Um, you know, Bush uh so and and what happened next, I mean McCain had a proposal, the big thing that 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 George W. Bush was running on was tax cuts, uh particularly for the rich, and that's why the plutocrats within the party loved him. Sure, um, but McCain had a tax plan that was much more balanced. I think only two percent of its benefits would go to the top one percent, as compared with the forty percent that ended up going to the top one percent under Bush's series of huge tax cuts. But he and he also wanted to do genuine political reform. Uh, and from Arizona, he he had long been talking about immigration reform, which Bush, it should be said, was also generally supportive of. But uh, what happened in in the race was that in South Carolina, basically Bush relied on surrogates in the evangelical conservative movement um, to um, smear McCain as uh, you know as as a whole host of things that are not really worth going into. Right wing media played an important role too, and it was really an illustration of how, when pushed to the wall, uh, even more you know ostensibly compassionate conservative candidates were willing to deploy some of this arsenal uh, to gain power. What what happened with Bush, I think, is quite useful for thinking about why the party uh, moved in the direction of Trump. And the um, quote that I love to, to remind people of is in when around 2013, when the autopsy report came out um, from the Republican National Committee saying, essentially, that the party needed to broaden its base uh, just a few years before Donald Trump doubled down on the white voting base. Well, around that time, uh, Lindsey Graham said, we're not generating enough angry white guys yeah. to stay in business for the long term. And, and, and so a lot of people now look back at George W. Bush wistfully. And what we say in the book, what we show in the book is that the priority of putting the priority on these plutocratic aims just made it very hard for Bush to really build, uh, help the party build a strong base within uh, right. Within among Hispanic voters, because ultimately they cared out about more than immigration reform. Of course, the other thing that ha- they cared about economic policies that were broadly uh, beneficial to the middle class, and those were not delivered. But I was going to say that, um, that of course, it, it also is a case that these outrage stokers that the party had come to rely on were not the parties alone to control, and that they were increasingly allied with the more conservative elements. Right-wing elements of the party that were pushing for you know against immigration reform and for more extreme kinds of cultural policies, and so you know we don't want to suggest that the plutocrats are like you know engineering this whole thing, as we say in the book. They're not like Bond villains <laughs> yeah. in their hidden layer in the volcano. Um, they wanted they, they wanted certain things, particularly they wanted big tax cuts. They like you know deregulation of finance. They like a compliant administration, very pro-energy administration. Um, but um, but they didn't. They needed votes, and to get those votes, they partnered with or encouraged partnership with groups that uh, had their own agendas. And the result is uh, that the party had a very hard time taking those off ramps and ended up uh, in a place where Donald Trump was kind of uh, the candidate that the Republican base could believe in.
1: Yeah. Well, even even then, though, I mean, let's assuming Lindsey Graham of 2012 was right about that. It seems to me that. Well, part of the argument you're developing in the book is, well, this is what the modern Republican Party has done, but they're increasingly finding that it's not going to be necessarily enough or sustainable. And so then we see more of a move toward what you might call anti-democratic policies, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most um, alarming um, aspects of this. Maybe, well, I was going to say maybe the most alarming, though, I think just the I should say that it's already very alarming in in our view um, when a a popularly elected uh, government bestows its its policies in a way that really benefits only the interests of a tiny fraction of the population. And I think we're we're experiencing now. You know, this interview is taking place against the backdrop of a pandemic in which. Um, that the vital institution that we need to respond to it, the federal government, is completely incapable of doing so um, because so much of the apparatus has been um, for uh, public infrastructure has been gutted and because um, the the administration is filled with people who actually don't have the skills, the competence uh, to engineer an appropriate response, and the priorities both within the Republican Party in Congress and within the administration are on uh, protecting uh, the economically privileged rather than responding to the crisis that we're facing. So so just the effects of, of plutocrat-led government, I think, are, are already um, uh, you know, astonishingly damaging. Um, but there is this, this developing dynamic as well, um, which is yeah as, as the the demographic shift against the Republican Party every year it gets a little bit harder uh, just to, to, to uh, win elections with um the demographic coalition that the Republican party uh, is reliant upon now, the temptation if you're not if you're not willing to adjust your policies in response to that, if you're not willing to reach out to these other voters uh, or if your base won't allow you to reach out to the to these other voters. Uh, then the temptation is to figure out some way that you can win elections anyway. And that's why, you know, political scientists in the last few years have found themselves uh, trying to understand research on other countries that we used to think was not relevant to the United States and under the the general label of democratic backsliding. And of course, um, the book by uh, Steve Levitsky and, and Daniel Ziblatt, two Harvard scholars, uh, is I think it's played a critical role in introducing these ideas to an American audience, uh, that that democracy can slip away step by step. Uh, And uh, that has clearly uh, been happening, or at least elements of it have been happening in the United States uh, in the last few years. Gerrymandering is one one example of it. Voter suppression is another. Um, Stacking the courts uh, with people who will... uh, Uh, Protect your ability to 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 gerrymander, gerrymander, and suppress uh, voting uh, is another element of this as well. But there are there are further steps that we can see some signs of. We're recording this interview the day in which, on a day in which the president tweeted uh, that uh, maybe maybe it was time to think about uh, delaying uh, the presidential election. Um, He, some people will say that wasn't serious. Um, uh, some people will say it's a distraction from attempt to distract from the, the horrible uh gdp growth num- numbers uh, that came out uh, this morning as well uh but it's an astonishing thing to have an american president uh ex- you know publicly expressing that kind of idea
1: and and I, I mean i i've gone i've been on record and I'll just repeat it again that I I'm deeply concerned about that and it seems to me that when you have somebody who at the head of the party who I I do not think no matter what happens on November 3rd would be is will be willing to concede in any meaningful way uh, that that's that's deeply, deeply troubling, uh, given given the given the president's following. But, you know, even I guess even more of an impediment, one might say, is the, the issue of institutional design that at least currently favors Republicans, right? Especially in the Electoral College in the Senate. And so there's this idea that even if raw numbers are on the side of the Democrats, perhaps, that that's kind of a sort of a firewall, right?
2: Certainly, that's been the feeling up until maybe 2018, when the firewall was high enough to keep keep Republicans from losing the Senate. Um, In fact, they lost huge ground in the house, but didn't in the Senate. it. Um, but I think people understand that, you know, if there's a big enough wave, it, it can get over the, 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 um, it can get over the, the flood walls that have been built. But, but I think you're right uh, to emphasize something, which is very important is that the Republican party has benefited more and more from the degree to which our political system itself, um, uh, advantages more rural areas I mean one way to think about this is that we have a political system that rewards parties for holding territory as well as for winning votes, and the Republicans hold a lot of territory so the senate is 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 an obvious site <laughs> for that sure. uh, uh, for that uh, for that advantage to play out um, you know it used to be that there wasn't a huge correlation between morality and vote for Republicans now there is and as a result um, the Senate is more and more a um, uh, it's more and more going to the Republicans despite the fact that across the country they're winning a minority of the popular vote or another way to put it is that the Senate is essentially massively overweighting republican uh, leaning states um, and that carries over to the electoral college um, because of the way it's constructed. after all um, the Republicans lost um, the, the popular vote. Trump lost a popular vote and won the presidency, but that's not an an anomaly. Um, In (laughs) the last um, uh, president to win, uh, the last Republican to win a popular vote majority um, was George W. Bush in 2004. Um, And in fact, Republicans have essentially lost a popular vote in every uh, presidential election since 1988. Uh, But of course, they've they've captured the presidency in three of those elections. So that's another big advantage. In the House, as Paul said, it comes mostly from extreme partisan gerrymandering, but we should note that part of extreme partisan gerrymandering is a lot easier when, A, you control a lot of states, um, and B, um, when your voters are spread out while your opponent's voters are all yeah. concentrated in urban areas where you can pack them into a few districts, leading to a very large number of wasted democratic votes. Areas, so I won't go on, except for to say that I think that the story we tell is of a party that's in a race against demographic time, and they're really on the wrong side of the two great trends of our era: that is, rising diversity and rising inequality. Their policy stances with regard to inequality are unpopular, and their um, and their voter base uh, with you know is is. is white voting base is increasingly um, uh, losing ground to a more diverse electorate that um, that we see around us. But but I think it's very important to understand that there are all these very powerful advantages um, that allow them to hold on to power and perhaps more worrisome and, well, certainly more worrisome and perhaps more important. Uh, Republicans have figured out a lot of ways to control policymaking and stay in power despite not uh, winning potpourri. So that's that's the big fear, right? We, you know, this race of against time could end with Republicans facing electoral defeat that leads them to more moderate positions uh, and toward a really multiracial party, or it could lead to them uh, seeking further undermine our democracy and, and thereby threatening the vitality of, of the world's oldest constitutional democracy.
1: Now, of course, the Republican Party, when Donald Trump was elected, they had unified control of government for, well, for two years. And so one might say, well, if economic elites are in the driver's seat to the extent that some on on the left argue they are, why Didn't they put enough? Why didn't they put pressure on Senate Republicans to abolish the filibuster? They could have gotten rid of Obamacare. They could have done a bigger tax cut. They could have advanced so much more of their agenda. And yet that didn't happen. And isn't that a sign maybe that economic elites aren't as powerful in the GOP as some may think they are?
0: Well, just it's a great question. And just to be clear, um, you know, we're not arguing that they're all powerful. Right. Um, you know, they um, nobody ever gets everything that they want um, in in politics. Certainly not in um, our our separation of powers system. Uh, but um, you know we've been we've been studying this alliance between Republicans and economic elites for twenty years now, and um, they have never had as much policy success as they had in the first um, two years of the Trump administration. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell described 2017 as the best year for conservatives uh, across the board uh, in the 30 years that he that he'd been in Washington. And uh, Charles Koch, um, you know, the leader of the, the very powerful Koch uh, brothers network that um, that has played such an important role in pushing um, reactionary economic policies, also said that he'd accomplished more in the last five years, basically, since the rise of the Tea Party moving on um, into uh, the first year of the Trump administration, more in the last five years uh, than in the previous um, 50 years that he had been trying to influence politics. Uh, and they had very good reason to be uh, so happy. Um, they did get huge tax cuts. Uh, they um, they got two Supreme Court justices uh, who, you know, people always talk about the position of these uh, Supreme Court justices on on the social issues, on, on religion or on on, on guns or, or on abortion. Uh, but um, much more low profile, but extraordinarily important, has been the shift to the right on economic issues of the Supreme Court. This is an extremely uh, corporate friendly uh, right. Supreme Court. We could run through some of the decisions, but um, that's been a huge priority for the Chamber of Commerce and the Koch Network and Mitch McConnell and so on. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell doesn't pursue that agenda because he cares about the social issues. He cares about he cares about the economic issues first and first and foremost. And they also have played an uh, incredibly prominent role. These forces within the Trump administration. Uh, you know, you look at an agency like the EPA, uh, at which we which we chronicle in the book, but it's just illustrative. The same thing has happened across the federal bureaucracy, uh, where lobbyists. Um, uh, Figures from the the Koch brothers network itself uh, have been placed in uh, top positions in these agencies to pursue uh, the kinds of uh, policies within this powerful bureaucracy that they favor. Uh, So um, uh, it's true that these groups didn't get all that they wanted, and there are some issues where, like trade, for example, where they probably had to hold their noses. But They've achieved staggering policy victories, far greater than the ones that they achieved uh, under the previous high water mark uh, for these plutocratic interests. With George W. w. Yeah. The president
1: you know, I you you mentioned uh, the Trump administration, and I, I want to make an argument that well, maybe if if a Republican from as as a liberal speaking, this is and again not considering the pandemic. So that's a whole different story, but the, the incompetence of the response. But putting that aside, which I understand is impossible to do, but I would argue that you could you can make a case that if any, any Democrat or sorry, any Republican were to be elected out of the group that was running, it would maybe have been best to have Donald Trump elected because of the administration's I'll charitably call it lack of experience, his combative nature, his positions on immigration and trade that definitely don't really favor the economic elite, that at least a Donald Trump administration on those economic issues has been a bit of a speed bump where, like I say, a Marco Rubio administration surely would have been more experienced and would be able to finesse some of these things through and it it would have actually advanced that agenda more. So in a weird way... Donald Trump has maybe been a bit of a disappointment compared to a lot of other Republicans who could have been elected. And, and I wonder what you thought about that.
2: You know, I, I have to say, I, Mike, I, 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 I see one element of that argument, but it's, and I'll come back to it, but mostly I disagree. And, and I disagree. For one thing, it's just impossible to put aside the 150,000 sure. plus Americans yeah. who died yeah. in this crisis, far, far more than would have uh, absent. Um, Donald Trump being at the White House, but I also think let's just put aside the policy for a moment. I think Donald Trump has has really undermined uh, American democracy, In doing so, he has a continued trends within the Republican Party, but he's massively intensified them. You know, there's that scene in Spinal Tap where the where the uh, guitarist is explaining how great it is that his amp can go all the way to eleven, yeah. right? Yeah. And so Donald Trump turned the dial to eleven, and when you turn the dial to eleven on, say, vote rigging or uh, norm breaking or destroying the guardrails or demanding loyalty uh, in a separation of power system, where the only protection against presidential aggrandizement is that the ins- that Congress in- asserts its own institutional independence, when you do that, you really undermine democracy, and I think that's just a huge cost. There, there are two ways in which I, I, I there's two ways in which I agree, and I'll briefly summarize them. One is. It's very scary that uh, an incompetent, authoritarian-minded <laughs> president is able to get as far as Donald Trump is. Right? Sure. Um, it suggests that a more skillful practitioner of his politics might well have done better. And the second um, way I agree is that I, I, you know, this is an open debate. But the the big defeat uh, in the first two years for the Republicans was their failure to move forward on a health care bill, and the goal. In their healthcare bills, had always been consistently right—not just to diss the Obama efforts, right, but to roll back those valued health protections so they could provide tax cuts to rich people. They still ended up providing tax cuts to rich people and corporations, but they could have been a lot bigger, (laughs) maybe better from some people's standpoint if they had gotten the healthcare bill through, and they didn't. And you know, given how close it was, people forget, right? This was a nice edge proposition. Given how close it was, perhaps a more skillful president uh, could have managed to usher, uh, usher it through. Um, and that would have been a, a, actually a, a bigger victory for the plutocrats. But I, I think all things considered, um, the Trump presidency has showcased both the, the dark side of both the right-wing populist and anti-democratic elements of the party and the plutocratic elements of the party. And indeed, I think it was because the plutocrats were so pleased with so much of what they've got that they were willing to tolerate developments within the right. party that may now be threatening their, their the future of those gains, but also threatening our democracy. Yeah. You know,
1: as as we kind of wind up, we've we focused almost entirely on the Republicans and, and certainly rightly so. That's what your book is about. I hate those. I hate those interviewers who ask ask people questions about what they didn't write about. But I'm going to do that anyway, just briefly. So I hope you'll bear with me. I kept this to the end for that reason. But, you know, I wonder about the Democrats. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a Democrat. And sometimes I feel the arguments that people make about have the, the party having missed an opportunity. And, you know, maybe radicalizing themselves and missing the chance to uh, embrace kind of a a people's populism as opposed to a plutocratic populism, that there's a missed opportunity on the left as well here. And if they hadn't turned off a certain number of voters, I mean, it wouldn't have taken many, right, in 2016, and we'd be looking at a very, very different situation. And so, again, knowing that that's not your focus, I'd still like to get your, your thoughts on that.
0: Well, yes, it's it's a completely fair question, Mike, and I, um uh you know, we made a, a conscious choice in this book. We wanted to keep it uh focused and and concise as concise as, as as we as academics could manage. Um and so there are a lot of things that um that are very worthy of discussion uh, that we didn't that we didn't go into in any kind of depth and certainly that's we we made a conscious decision not to spend too much time talking about the Democrats. Um, but I, I mean, I think you've raised, you've, the point that you've raised is completely fair. Um, and the way that we put it in winner Take All Politics, um, going back uh, three books now, um, uh, before, the way we put it in winner Take All Politics was that um, the rising inequality has had profound effects on both political parties, uh, but different effects on the two political parties. Um, for Republicans, it's pushed them way to the right, um, and, and comfortably so. They've simply embraced it. Uh, they've embraced uh, the winners in the winner-take-all economy. For Democrats, because they were positioned differently to begin with, you know, they traditionally have been the working-class party, the party that's more open to redistribution, they've been cross-pressured. Uh, they, uh, they are conflicted as they deal with The reality is that economic and political power uh, is much more concentrated in the hands of the wealthy and and corporations uh, than it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. The unions, for example, uh, which, uh, you know, still remain a force in the Democratic Party, but they're far, far weaker in American society than they were a generation or two ago. So Democrats have been conflicted, and there's no question um, that, has made it more difficult for them to respond effectively uh to the kinds of economic strains that ordinary Americans um that ordinary Americans face and that you know that's limited their political response and it is sometimes as I think it did in 2016 put them in a position where they're backing a candidate uh who for a variety of reasons does not do an effective job of um articulating the economic case for the democratic
1: party and while I would love to, I'm, I'm sure the three of us could go on for another hour on that and other topics. I know we're pretty much up against a hard limit, but I do have one final question for it. It's a question I, I, I hope I get a certain answer to, but uh, how optimistic are you that, in that, that our institutions will kind of respond in the way we hope they will and that, and that we won't have a system that at least long-term is captured so much by, the, by plutocratic interests?
2: Well, first. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for this really stimulating conversation uh, and for many before this um, between us. Um, I, and this may be one area where Paul and I actually disagree because I tend to be somewhat more optimistic than him. It's all relative. Um, uh, Paul and I seem to be on a mission to turn political science into the true dismal science. <laughs> but uh, but I'm, relatively speaking, the, the more optimistic of the two. and 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 part of the reason I am is that I actually think what we're seeing. Um, so there are two reasons. One is the one that we've talked about. Um, the demographic shifts are powerful uh, and, they're, and they're adverse. And Donald Trump, it, with his catastrophic mishandling of this crisis and his um, doubling down on a set of really narrow uh, and, and extreme ap- and racist appeals, um, has, has really magnified the chance that there's going to be a massive electoral reverse. Now, I think we've already expressed a lot of worry about what's going to happen uh, in November. Um, you know, Republican senators push back against Trump's assertion that we should move the election. <laughs> so there are some limits, but, uh, but still, uh, you know, we cannot be confident that, especially if the election is close. Um, actually, if we can be confident that if the election is close, it's going to be highly contested and really ugly. Um, but my optimism also stems from, so, Putting aside that fear, my optimism also stems from the sense that the party is working through a set of really difficult democratic parties through a set of really difficult issues that are going to put it in a better place to appeal to ordinary voters on economic grounds. And I won't elaborate on that, uh, but but one thing that Paul and I have been thinking a lot about is that that set of appeals really has to figure out how to bridge the urban, non-urban right. divide that has been so central to our politics. and. Because Democrats essentially have to start um, on the 30-yard line um, because of the rural bias of our institutions, they're the party that's going to have to figure this out um, if they want to win and hold power for longer. Yeah, and, um, and I'm a little more encouraged than I have been in the past that they,
0: they may well be able to.
1: Well, that, that's, that's good. Paul, do you, you want to end things on a more pessimistic note? <laughs>
0: No, no, I think, it, I think it's good to end on this note. So it's good that you uh, directed this question to, to Jacob, um, though he, he always listening to him always makes me more optimistic. So I'll just echo his, his thanks for, uh, for a really, really stimulating set of questions.
1: Right. Well, I, it was it was great to talk to, to both of you this time, and and I look forward to, to talking uh, with you uh, when your next book comes out. I'm sure it will be soon because because you put them out at an impressive rate, and they're all great to read. I, I've enjoyed them all. assigned many in my classes, and I really appreciate both of you taking the time to talk with me today.
2: Thanks so much. Pleasure.
1: So, Jay, what did you uh, what did you take away? What any kind of uh, uh, initial thoughts about what the Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson had to say or you know what i maybe had to say back to them uh what what occurred to you after hearing that interview
3: well first i i would say uh there's a lot to cover there yeah um and and you and i both uh I, we talked before this you know initially a lot of times when we do these these interview reactions it's just sort of i listen to it do kind of a hot take and and you know we you know, we kick around, you know, what we think. Um, but there is a whole lot of stuff to cover here. And a lot of it I think is, is stuff that's, that's kind of sensitive. And I, to the extent I respond to it, uh, particularly the comments about uh, race and, and the Republican party. Um, I want to, I want to put that together a little more fully. So you and I said, we're going to have a, a bigger uh, show talking about those aspects um, of it specifically. Um, I guess, you know, stepping, stepping back the, the, 30,000 foot view, um, is, is I think what, what they, they misunderstand. And, and again, this is me telling, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, Ivy league, uh, professors, what they misunderstand, but, <laughs> uh, having, having worked with, uh, the Republican party and in the Republican party, uh, in various aspects, um, the idea that there, there is some kind of plan, uh, like this, um, it, it it sort of boggles the imagination, um, and and I, I'd like, gosh, if I could if if I could take these guys to the party headquarters for for a day or so, and we could just spend a day walking around, seeing what everybody does, and and talking things up, I think they might radically uh, change their their view. I mean, so much of of uh, of of what uh, at least in in my view that has happened um, in in the Republican Party, there's not this this grand strategic thinking of, of we'll build this unholy alliance between corporate plutocrats and the, uh, the great unwashed, um, uh, populists. Uh, it's, it's more like, geez, can we find a candidate to run in this seat? Geez, can we find some money to raise to support this person? Um, Hey, what sells in this candidate's district versus what sells in that candidate's district? Um, so I, 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 I mean I guess there's sort of a fundamental disagreement I have with with their premise that this is how stuff works. Uh I think it's it's actually sort of the other way around that it's it's more a a, a grassroots uh uh bottom up type type thing of of the party responds to what it hears from its members its voters uh in terms of what issues are important. Uh, for example, one of the one of the things they they you talked about was uh, you know there's this focus on one aspect on on social issues on the supreme court and and uh these sort of things uh and and their implication at least as i as i understood it was well that's because there's sort of this this messaging that's put out that uh these things are outrages and therefore um this is what ought to get voters wound up and it's it's sort of this fake outrage Uh, I I dispute that and say, no, I think a lot of cases it's it's real outrage. And and there are certainly people and organizations out there that stoke this. Um, But but they're typically not part of the the party apparatus. Uh, In fact, often they're they're sort of out well outside the party apparatus uh, and the party would often uh, rather they they weren't there. Um, But, you know, I I, I think there's this idea that. this is some sort of top-down brainwashing kind of thing, um, isn't the case? Uh, and, and look, I, I, the biggest example of a lot of this is is Donald Trump, um, in that no party elite folks saw him or wanted him. Uh, this this was a, a populist uh, movement, and and sort of to the, the best efforts of, um, uh, you know, that's one of the things the I asked him about. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I just don't, I just don't see that as being, um, reflective of, of that. There's yeah. some sort of, you know, Faustian bargain here.
1: Well, um, no, I certainly, you know, and that's a point where I disagree with them. I, I certainly think that, that from, as a, as a liberal, I'm, uh, you know, in some weird ways, I mean, again, you know, I talked about coronavirus aside, and that's, you know, I think they pointed out it's impossible to put that aside, but, but that Donald Trump has, you know, has, you know, certainly has policies that aren't aligned with kind of the larger picture there because he's just yeah. kind of a wild yeah. card. But to, to your other point, and maybe that may I, I don't recall if I talked to them about this beforehand or if it made its way in, but one of the things that that Paula Jacob said to me uh well at some point was, you know, it's not like we're saying that there are these guys twisting their mustaches and cackling or anything like that. They're not saying it's a plot so much. And maybe that didn't come through in the interview. Just that you kind of go where the money is and you go where the influence is and the republican party reached out to those interests because there was more of a natural alignment at first and what it's doing is systematically distorting everything and i agree with you that it's very hard for me to believe that there are these dastardly people in their you know in their bond headquarters kind of deciding how they're going to crush the little guy but i don't think it's it's nearly as as unbelievable that the republican party in general is being distorted by the influence of these very powerful economically and politically powerful actors any more than you would probably disagree oh. that the democratic party is to a certain extent distorted by the influence of say teachers unions Indian. and trial lawyers
3: yeah yeah no and and i i think to that i think it's 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 right but um, that 's sort of an unremarkable conclusion to come to right that that money plays a big part in, in in politics and I guess the other the other thing that struck me that you know when we talk about inequality which was which was one of their big big themes um, was, was there 's somehow this this idea that it 's uh, a plot of the right or a a goal of the right to have this inequality. if you look at where this inequality exists um you know these these big play these big massive shifts uh uh in in you know dramatic differences in income um they're not in Kansas uh you know they're 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 not in Alabama um they are on the coasts they are uh, and and the, the these big money corporate uh folks um uh are have become at least uh, uh to the public very much woke on social issues particularly as of late and I so I, I again I just I don't I disagree with the you know the, I, the that's why I said I, I want to almost take more time to unpack a lot of this. Um but I I, I don't think you can say that uh you know, look the the inequality in, in terms of, of uh what people have and then political spending, also that doesn't seem to make sense because look the 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 Clinton campaign spent a lot more money than than the Trump campaign um uh so you know look is is there this is is the is the financial inequality that they're complaining about is that really being translated into political inequality and and as the the subtitle says the, the you know the how the right controls or the right rules I forget the the word um but uh i mean my my response is my my gosh the the rights you know <laughs> we're not in control of nothing <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> you know? i i would say if you if you take a look at uh, you take at lobbying lobbying spending and campaign spending as a whole, as opposed to just singling out one particular very unusual campaign because of Donald Trump, certainly, and to a lesser extent Hillary Clinton, that you would see that organizations that one would typically call conservative are far, far, far outspend uh, uh, organizations that one might call conservative or, sorry, liberal or worker oriented. uh, And that there's, it's not even, it's not even close basically.
3: Well, but let's, let's, I mean, again, we got to go to the real numbers there in terms of of what we're talking about. Are we talking about campaign contributions? Everything. Are are we talking about lobbying spending Um, or or things also that are, uh, uh, for example, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of union activities, which are not, um, uh, political in the sense of their contributions, they're still sort of party party building. Uh, uh, you know,
1: no matter uh, how you look at the numbers, I mean, I, I don't think there's I don't think there's any possible way to massage the data to not find that con- or, again organizations that one would typically call conservative okay. are outspend organizations one would typically call liberal, and and certainly there would have been a little more of an equality back when unions were any kind of a significant factor in American life, but really since the 1980s or so, unions have been in uh, a steep decline in the United sure. States. Okay,
3: so, so for, for, the, for the sake of argument, let's, uh, I'll accept that premise. Sure. Okay, let's say uh, conservative uh, right-wing groups spend a whole lot more. Um, how is that translated? Great question. Uh, yeah. Into, into any victory, because look, if if you look at all of our major cities uh, and and major counties in which those cities are located are controlled by Democrats almost exclusively and have been uh, in many cases for decades in many cases for for centuries. Um, you know I think our the balance in the Senate is 50/50 um, or, or I'm not 5050 but uh, it, it's it's uh, exceedingly close and there's there's you know widespread uh, belief that the Democrats will take the Senate. Uh, the democrats control the house by a fairly wide margin um uh you know if you look at state legislatures uh republicans typically fare better there and in, uh, governor's offices fare better there but still it's it's hard to say i mean if, if the premise of this is the right has all this money and it's spending all this money and it's controlling the world um you know it's I guess aside, also yeah. uh, also the, the the you know Trump election, which maybe you can put an asterisk and said, "Well, look, this was just weird." Uh, But you know, Barack Obama was elected to two terms, and and during one term had control of the Senate, control of the House. Uh, I guess I'm not seeing where's the. Where's the right wing control? Of
1: stuff? It's a great point. And, and, you know, political scientists and policy analysts have looked at that in a fairly systematic way. And what they tend to define is that when there is disagreement between what you might call economic elites and and regular people, economic elites get their policy preferences the vast majority of the time. And so the argument from the, the policy analyst perspective would be that when you look at actual policy outcomes, when there is a dispute between. "Quote unquote, the people and the elites. The elites win far more often than one would expect, and the argument is that because they have much more political economic power, that translates into translates into political power. And so there have been some there have been some very comprehensive studies of that done about the, about both federal and state state policy, and I find them to be very convincing.
3: Right, but that's that's kind of to my to my point is uh, again. Barack Obama was very much the candidate of the economic elites, uh but he certainly wasn't uh, uh you know a candidate of the right. Uh Donald Trump uh who who went astray from from most of typical conservative ideology uh was certainly not a candidate of the elite. Um and uh he won. Uh so again I, I just I'm I'm not seeing the I, I guess there's there's sort of this idea that uh economic policy and uh, economic elites Necessarily is a right right wing thing. And I I think it's quite quite the opposite. And if you're the other piece of that, that, you know, so much of the inequality that we talk about uh, occurred during the Obama administration when, you know, what we what was going on was you had a a slower economic recovery uh, for for the the guy on the street. Right. Um, But because of actions mainly through the Fed um the stock market was still flying high so if you were, if you were had money in equities and and you know if, if you had money to spend money to invest uh by the end of those uh 8 years uh or, or let's say let's say end of you know 20 uh 2008 to the 2016 2017 um you did really well for yourself uh it wasn't necessarily a matter of even a legislative policy it was more monetary policy i think um uh, other than you want to say maybe the legislative policy kept the the, the little guy down a little bit more, but I, I guess those that's that's sort of I guess where I, where I'm disputing their their premise,
1: right? Um. Uh, I I guess I guess my response to that would be is that you know m- most people who the people who are the least well off are the people who have the least stake in sort of the the stock market and that sort of thing, and so they they you know that exacerbates. These uh, these inequalities and that. uh, And to me, those are those are Trump voters. Okay, and so, yeah, in terms of the Trump issue, I think you and I actually significantly agree. I think that they're wrong. I mean, my sense of things is that Donald Trump was at least a speed bump in the way of what they're arguing is this larger project. You and I disagree about whether there is this sort of larger project, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, intentional or not. But I think where we agree and where we disagree with Hacker and Pearson is that Donald Trump represents something that the elites wouldn't have wanted and suggests that at least under certain circumstances, things can happen. Big things can happen in national politics that at least temporarily disrupt elite dominance of the system.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, see, you know, t- to me, I guess there is there's this. The question is: Okay, is Donald Trump just a a speed bump, a weird asterisk, something you know it was just a weird thing that that year because of Hillary Clinton, the FBI, sure. all you know, all the other all the other stuff going on, or was it a fundamental party realignment?
1: Yeah, I don't. I think it's just. I think it's the former. I think it's just that things will go back to business as usual. I think whether or not you know, down in either either in twenty twenty one or in twenty twenty five, I think things will just go back to essentially. What what they were, and the Republican Party will continue to champion the sort of uh, trade policies and uh, immigration policies that make sense for their biggest donors, and those aren't things that Donald Trump uh, champions. And and you know, I think he's been a disruptive force in a lot of ways because he's Captain Chaos. And as you you pointed out many times, one thing that economic elites don't like is a, a chaotic, unpredictable oh, yeah. environment. So, uh,
3: with- I guess let's let's go back then to another sort of. Sort of weird thing because uh, so often there is sort of <clears throat> I think in the economic world or not economic academic world uh, obviously Trump bad or uh, Orange Man bad, uh, but look if if the economic elites had their way, um, we would have uh, much fewer restrictions on immigration, uh, which I'd be I'd be okay with me too. Uh, uh, because look business needs uh business needs labor we had at least again as of you know pre pandemic there were a whole lot of jobs there were there were more people uh there were more jobs than there were people looking for jobs um uh that's that's changed and hopefully that changes back again but uh you know i i guess the other thing is well is, is that bad and is it again a right wing sort of sort of issue uh, that's that's where i i take issue that that it's sort of the uh you know this is how they the right controls the uh the masses um and, yeah. and yet serves its economic masters because i i don't think it's i just don't think it's doing that i don't think it's doing both if you if you ask uh any uh, you know I, I think typical conservative uh, how do you and what i'm sorry i'm i'm talking too much i guess i guess the other the other piece when they talked about the sort of supreme court appointments and well this is um you know how that plays in the politics uh again um my counter would be well what about john roberts what about Neil gorsuch i mean they they've certainly uh issued opinions of late uh that that depart from what the the, the populist impulse would be um so uh, again are 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 we really seeing this this control i i i don't i don't see it
1: yeah, and I, I would argue that they're they're largely right, though they are uh, incorrect in the in the perhaps almost total extent and so forth. So I would I would argue it's a group. I differ with them in terms of uh, level of control. In fact, I would go further, and I think they'd agree with me that plenty on the uh, kind of moderate left are also the whole the whole field has basically shifted to the right but that's and that's a bigger argument for another day but uh, and also can, I mean
3: again how can you say the whole field shifted to the right than when we just talked uh last week about uh the uh Bush uh election and yeah, and you I'm, know I'm there's about... more and more
1: yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about specific elections. I'm talking about like larger policy, uh, larger outcomes in terms of things like we see with, uh, with with taxation, with with worker protections, with 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 stuff like that. Things that I think really matter to regular people that I see uh union union uh membership, things that I see going going away and becoming less of a factor over the last twenty, thirty years. And I think that well, I think that largely economic interests have co-opted not only most of the entirety of the right with what I think are bad arguments, but also, you know, certain segments of the left.
3: All right. Well I, okay. And again, I'm I'm just thinking back to if you're talking about, you know, worker protections, you just had a Trump appointed uh, uh justice uh writing an opinion on you know essentially writing transgender rights into the uh um uh or, or you know
1: yeah and don't our, get me wrong i and, and agree I, so, with you there I mean, are that
3: the idea that, that oh, the oh the right wing is is winning on worker protection issues because of you know, Supreme Court. I, I just don't. Yeah. I just don't see it.
1: And I, I agree with you that there, you can definitely point out instances where that's not the case. But I think the overall trend is is very, very is very clear in a lot of in a lot of areas. And it's kind of against it's against. Uh, I would say uh, regular sort of uh, lower to lower middle class Americans, and much more in favor of upper uh, upper middle to upper class Americans. So,
3: and this is something I I, I don't think you really talked about. Well, maybe we'll hit this on them, you know, when we talk about this again. But you and I, I think uh one of one of our catchphrases, not our catchphrase really, but <laughs> the maxims is is sort of that politics is downstream from culture. Sure. Yeah. And and a lot of things we're looking at the, you know, the big uh, corporate elite plutocrats increasingly they're wading into and 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 responding to the culture and and creating sort of a and and, and look in fairness they you know uh, they wrote this book before uh, the uh, the George Floyd the Black Lives Matter uh, explosion that we saw in the last couple months um, but it, it was still out there that you have uh, in many cases uh, corporate America plutocrat America um, that is pushing a lot of these social pieces of, of the left. Um so again I think that just doesn't square with with their their hypothesis or they they didn't really take a look at that um uh because yeah, I I don't know I mean
1: I see what you're saying and I I agree that on certain on certain social issues that don't necessarily have a huge effect on the bottom line that there, there are these, there are these pushes, but when it comes to like the, the nitty gritty of what's going to affect, uh, what's going to benefit the shareholders and the, and the people in the executive suite that we see a, a very strong, uh, non-progressive agenda. Well, let's, let's hope so. Um, <laughs> let's hope not actually.
3: No, and actually there was, there was a, a good Wall Street Journal piece on that, that sort of, you know, made, made that point that it looks like, uh in, in a lot of cases these corporations are giving very much lip service to 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 their uh their wokeness yeah um, I agree with but that. it hasn't translated in any changes um now that said i'm not sure exactly what changes it would it would translate into other than again i, I get like i get emails from you know chipotle um telling me about you know racial equality and black and I'm just like, I, just, I just want a burrito and and i get this from like you know every, every sort of like place that i i do business with right i get i get these crazy emails telling me all about and and
1: i'm saying it's it's essentially cost for it's very low cost for chipotle to do that but doing something like providing their employees with good health good health insurance or you know higher wages, well that's where they that's where they draw the line because it's easy to just say oh yes we love everyone please be our customers don't boycott us but it's another thing to say well we're gonna we're gonna you know pay our employees a, a living wage and that sort of thing that's a lot harder to do well none of, and none of this should
3: be taken as a a shot at Chipotle. i because no, no, because i am i'm am a big I'm a big fan of of uh, of their products uh if anything it's it's just a matter of uh, again my fifty year old conservative mind uh, can't get around uh, just the idea of of why so many corporate interests are wading into these uh, these sort of things uh, and making statements and sort of the you know then we'll Will make a contribution to this organization or that organization, um, but 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 again, it goes back to the point of look. Still, if if you're saying that this is somehow a, a the plutocrats running the country, um, uh, corporate interest, moneyed interest running the com- country, um, they are still out there, sort of driving and supporting a lot of this, uh, uh, a lot of these these social issues. Yeah, so, and,
1: and I, I agree with you that that I I think that there is more to be- Something to be said about that distinction between pocketbook issues and social issues, and I raised that question. And I feel like while they admitted that yeah, it was a thing, I don't. I think a lot of people on the left perhaps don't appreciate the uh, the value of these kind of non-economic things to a lot of people, and it does weigh in a little more than uh, I, I think. Many people on the left give it credit for. So on that, I right. think you and do what there, I. May be. There was
3: sort of the sense that I got. They're making the argument that that. Well, I mean, they were making there that sort of all these populist voters have been sort of uh, you know this this false consciousness sort Good of way. thing sure. um, that uh, they're voting against their interests uh, because gosh they're, they're they're too dumb to know what their interests are uh, and they've been misled by these these folks telling them that um, all these other social issues matter, but. But I, I think that's that's just fundamentally wrong, and, and it, you know, again, I don't want to accuse them of being in bubbles, but um, look, I think if they got out and, and talked to a whole lot of people, there are people who sense it's not even economic concern, although economic concern is, is part of it. There is this sort of, uh, you know, the center uh, cannot hold kind of kind of thing, widening gyre, all that bit that that everything that they they knew believed is is now being. Tra- and not, not even not even disagreed with or changed but the privilege is being uh, like challenged. Said, it, the, the social whipsaw that that uh, that so many folks are going through. And I think that's there. There's something to that, and it's not easy to quantify. Uh, sure, but uh, it's not nothing.
1: Well, you know, and at the same time, when you're more economically insecure, and then socially, there's a lot of changes. That that's tough to deal with. All of that, all of that at once. And oh, so, I agree
3: And I'd say the economic piece is
1: part of it. Yeah, right? definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, um, like you said, there's a lot there, and we will. You know, we for a long time, uh, I think. Well, not for a long time, but certainly in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing and everything that kind of came from that, you know, we we felt the need to maybe take a little more time and talk more fully about race and politics. We haven't done that yet, but as Jay Jay said before we uh, started recording today, we agreed that that's something we really wanted to devote you know certainly a longer segment maybe an entire episode too and that is something you can expect to see in the not too distant future and i'm looking forward to having that conversation
3: and and, and look i will put the, the caveat out there right now this is you know two white guys uh two, Absolutely. two white you know middle aged uh, uh reasonably comfortable know, yeah highly educated
1: highly educated
3: uh, uh, yeah. uh, white guys uh, talk, talking about this um and to the extent we can get other voices uh you know i think I think we're gonna look to do that um sure. but again to to me the the bigger the bigger thing that troubled me uh from from the interview was there was the this implication that uh there is a a an underlying sort of racial agenda uh in this, and that's that's what I really wanted to, to push back on um in our next time we talk about this and so we'll do
1: that absolutely. Well, uh, uh, thanks everyone for, for listening. And, uh, again, we appreciate your support. If you are not a supporter, cause this is, uh, this is our kind of in place of our regular Saturday show. Uh, you know, it would be great if you could become one going to patreon.com slash politics guys, or if you can't afford to become a support, but you want to keep on getting all of our content. Just send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to everything we put out. And if you could, please subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially uh, share your favorite episodes on social media or email. Getting the word out is just super important to keeping us going. And if you just want to generally uh, mail us about something, it's mail at com. Check out our bipartisan politics subreddit, our Facebook group, and Finally, a special thank you to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Today's show is produced by me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you join us.